0: Welcome to The Dolma Show, hosted by Australia's leading luxury interior designer, Katarina Barakovska. Katarina explores the lifestyles and interiors of some of the world's best known and loved celebrities, entrepreneurs, and design experts, diving deep into their wardrobes, interior design choices, homes, and lifestyles, so you will be inspired for your own luxury design projects. You can find more inspiration at katerinabarakowska.com. Now relax and let's enter Doma.
1: Good morning, Andrew. Welcome, Doma. Thank you for joining us this morning.
2: Good morning to you too.
1: Where are you calling us from this morning? Where are you joining us from?
2: I'm joining you from the Foxtel Studios in Sydney because I'm down here doing some work with Foxtel because obviously there's a new season of Selling Houses Australia about to kick off and while I'm sort of doing the old publicity trail today.
1: Oh, fantastic. So what's the story behind the role you find yourself in today?
2: It's it's actually a little bit of interviews and stuff like that, because we're talking about the new season and what's going on. I, do you watch Selling House Australia? That's the first question.
1: Absolutely, it's one of my favourite shows.
2: So we, we're, we're going to air on Fox at the moment with, believe it or not, season 15. And it's without doubt the challenge season, because the real estate market across Australia last season we were shooting was just, well, really important. a new cushion in and paint the wall fresh and and another hundred thousand dollars the price tag and you're sold it's very different this season a much more challenging market it's by far not a slump and not all bad news but we cover lots of different parts of australia it's different results in different places it's just it almost feels like a normal market day i say day i say
1: so season 15 now what have you found most rewarding or challenging or surprising working on the show?
2: I think probably my one constant amazement is that whilst I have a I've had a passion for real estate and residential property since I was a kid that was quite an unusual passion not the normal sport but the fact that really for many Australians that passion of real estate is shared they might like sport but they also like to talk about house prices and interest rates and they could see rates and, and everything else around the barbecue just as much as the LRL game. So it's yeah, I suppose that's one of my very pleasurable thing to take away. But that passion is it would be number one, that passion for real estate. And then with the show, it's that just when you think you've seen it all, then another story comes along. And, and that's what the joy of making a reality show that's based on actual reality is. We don't have producers needing to fake any jeopardy or anything like that because it's genuinely all real and and if there is jeopardy there the cameras will be rolling
1: (laughs) that's what makes it more interesting the more real the better right
2: oh absolutely
1: Um, what was the vision of what was the vision for the show when you first started hosting it and has that does that vision uh, remain today
2: okay i can't claim to have had anything to do with creating the show the show was created by a production company back in the uk in 2001 and their premise was, as we're going over 20 years ago, probably shows are still very much in their infancy. There, there certainly wasn't the wide array of shows that, that there is today. And there was a void in that sort of in-category. And Selling Houses brand was created back in 2001 in the UK, and they just went on the hunt for a host. in In those days, it was a half-an-hour format, and it was just me. And the original show, I suppose their premise was to help people that couldn't sell their houses. And that, I think we did about three, I think, no, actually, I think we only did two seasons in the half-hour format. And then the hour-long model came along in season three. So that probably would have been as 2003, maybe, a long time ago. And then from then it stayed as an hour-long show until the UK ditched it in let's say, 2000 and 2008, I think it was ditched in the UK. And the Australians picked up the rights to it in 2008. And off we went again. And 15 seasons later, we're still going.
1: Congratulations on the success. That's fantastic. So you started as a selling agent. And now you're launching a career as a buyer's agent. Tell us about it. Okay,
2: yes. Yeah. So I was a selling agent from the age of 17. I was selling real estate even when I was doing the early shows, all the UK versions. I was still, I had a real estate business in London up until 2005. And then when I first came over to Australia, my wife and I ran an agency in the northern end of the Gold Coast in Australia until about 2008, 2009, mm-hmm. when media and family life took over and we thought we will set sell the business up we didn't it was a lot of effort trying to travel and young kids and all the rest of it it was quite a weird thing having gone from the age of 17 all the way through to that time and not be a practicing real estate agent but obviously the beauty of the show and I do another show called level which is still real estate based my passion for real estate was continuing because every time we the production find a show or a story to to follow they have to identify the ability for the story to work as a television show, as a program,
0: yeah.
2: which is very much something they have to do. But then they come to me to go, right, OK, what are the chances of selling this? What are the main things to focus on? So then my research starts and all the rest of it. That's been going on a long time, but now my kids are getting older and the shows are still being made. And during, like a lot of people, COVID had an impact. I, My fellow host, Dennis Scott, are wonderful gardener on Selling house Australia. Both of us were locked down in Sydney for five and a half months. And we both were Queensland-based, so we locked out of our state. So we had a lot of time on our hands. And one of the things I did was to renew my real estate license, which had lapsed. And I suddenly realized that I don't think I could be a selling agent anymore. It just wasn't practical. But I could and would love to be a buyer's agent. Not a lot of people don't realize is that old-school real estate agents, selling agents were more like buying agents back in pre-modern day times. So before the early noughties, early 2000s, a good real estate agent, uh, home buyers didn't have access to properties online like they do now. So if you got hold of a good buyer, but you didn't have the house for them, you'd get them in the car and you'd phone other agents. You'd get out there and look for other stock, do deals with other agents, whatever it took to, to keep this buyer with you because they didn't have access to all the stock that was on the market. So we kind of did that back in the day, but that obviously has changed a lot. There's no value in that for a real estate agent, now a selling agent, to look after a buyer in that way. So what's now happening is there's so many zeros involved with property. It's yeah. a massive purchase for people. And there's a lot of issues with making sure you get it right. So if you can have a buyer's agent on your side, just the time involved for somebody to purchase a property is massive. The commitment, get a good buyer's agent involved, you'll save a whole heap of time and hopefully get the right property for you. However, I'm getting, I'm only in the early stages. I'm up and running. I've got clients. I've already bought my first house for a client. So we're going, but I'm trying to partner with an existing agency so that we can expand a little bit more so we can offer the service more extensively than just me. Because partly I'm getting quite worried about the fact that this career, which I chose just really as a natural involvement, has become very popular with people that worries me because buying a house is a major decision and there's so many variables involved and we're now getting X AFL players ex people from the block somebody that bought and sold a house and made a profit in one year suddenly a buyers agent i even saw online one company saying how perfect it was the job within a couple of weeks you could be up and running oh my god you shouldn't ever employ a buyers agent that's been up and running in in weeks yeah, this you is something. Run. Yes, you should run. If you want a buyer's agent on your behalf, I personally would not want them to have a minimum of five or 10 years selling agency experience before they'd even even contemplate paying them any money. The perfect people for buyer's agents are ex-selling agents that have been in the industry a long time because they're the ones that really know the market inside out and how it works. So that that would be that side of things, and I think it was also spurred on by my role in Love It or List It is helping yeah. people find homes, and I get three chances on that. I mean, what are the chances? And not only that, what you can tell your listeners: the secret behind it is, of course, not only do we try and find them three homes, we try and find them three homes that we're allowed to film it. Oh. We might have found the perfect house, and I know that would get them; they won't let us film. So it's a really difficult scenario. And I think it was a little bit of that going, oh my God, I'd love to be doing this properly. And that's sort of spurred on this, this passion. And it's been very interesting because I'm actively buying at the moment for clients. And it's very different because every client is doing it. It's a journey. It's a journey that can be done in a week or it could be nine or 10 months. You just don't know. Sometimes people have the fear of missing out, the FOMO. Yeah. So they actually can rush into things they shouldn't be getting. Or you have other clients that are the opposite spectrum to that, where they are um, worried about commitment. So they'll get right up to buying something. Oh, no, we, we could buy that. It, it, and then they, they think, oh, but we won't pay that price. They're actually saying that because they don't really want to commit. Then we get to the next one. Oh, really like this. Will you pay the price? Oh, well, we wouldn't quite pay the price. Hang on a minute. There's something going on. And and also the other thing that, you, you, that I've known, because this is doing it for decades, is that you start with one brief you rarely buy on brief it's yeah people need to understand i'm sure you do with real estate if you want to buy a 10 year old i don't know red toyota corolla okay mm-hmm. it might take you a while to find one it might not quite have the mileage on it you want or the condition but you can get a red 10 year old toyota corolla somewhere and you can yeah. get that exact model if you if a developer builds a unit block of six one bedroom apartments that so they're all identical. He's built these six and they all sold last year. They're now 12 months old. Every single one of those one beds, if they were to come on the market, is different from the others. One's ground floor, one's on the first floor, one's north facing, one's south facing. One's being looked up, being lived in by a tenant who's looked after it beautifully, it is immaculate. The other one's had a messy owner occupier in there and a dog and a cat. It's a mess. All those six units are not identical. So that's the problem, and that's why buying real estate is a massive set of compromises.
1: I, I see that side of your business a lot, and I work with buyers' agents quite frequently, and I couldn't agree with you more. I see the different levels of experience based on their background and experience. The best ones, hands down, are selling agents. So
2: It's also that, that ability to look through stuff. So it's potential. You see a lot of buyers, because of the, the area that you work in, okay, is there's potential. But there's potential that an average buyer can realize easily and potential that an average buyer may end up spending twice as much on it. And in fact, is overcapitalized when they finished a buyer's agent will guide a client to the right. It's not just the right deal. It's about the right property for them. Because if you suddenly, I recently had one client and, and I had no idea of a certain fact that they really liked because they were looking for quite specific things and, we looked at one property which we actually tried to get, but we couldn't secure it. Long story, but it had this bushland outlook, and it suddenly that the one side of the partnership. Went, oh my god, I love that! And I realised that they hadn't quite twigged, but having some kind of green to look at, whether it was a park. Yeah. A block where there was a park next by, or a view of the hills, or something like that, was actually something that this particular client really wanted. They'd compromise on so many other things for that factor, and neither did she quite realize that was a key. So we've you we then skew the search towards slightly different things, and sometimes you can literally realize that the search that you're doing is actually never going to secure a home because their budget and their properties don't match. Yeah. So then you have to introduce new areas and new searches. You start all over again. It's yeah, It can be very long and lengthy.
1: Andrew, do you only concentrate in Victoria or Australia-wide?
2: Actually, I only generally base myself in Southeast Queensland and Sydney mm-hmm. at the moment. But that's the plan is to be able to work with other agents, top agents across the country so that we can offer a more broad. But uh, something that I can keep an eye on because there's other there's also investment specialists there's buyers agents to look for people's homes and then there's buyers agents to look for investment properties quite often they're even more scary than the ones that are looking for your homes because they're steering you towards house and land packages or off-plan apartments and all sorts which could be the best buy ever or could be a complete disaster
1: is there a home that you've worked with for clients that stands out for you and do you mind sharing a story
2: There's so many. Over the years, I've dealt with all sorts of kind of weird and wonderful properties. But if you really want to know, it's a long time ago. A standout property for me was as a selling agent. It goes back to the mid-1990s. And I worked in an area of England at that particular time called the Cotswolds, which is very iconic and beautiful historic villages It's it's chocolate bar territory. And my then boss, he had a lawyer contact him with a property that had been gone into foreclosure, not by a bank, but by the local council, because the owner had never paid the rates for decades. And after so many years of you not paying your rates, the council will take your home away. And this was an elderly lady who I went and visited in a nursing home, really, even though I did it out of courtesy because she'd been kicked out and we had access to the house anyway, but I did it out of courtesy. The story was this lady was a very well-known ballerina in London, oh, yeah. in whatever era it was, 30s or 40s. And she had got herself a partner who was a very wealthy man who uh-huh. was married.
0: Yeah. Oh.
2: And in order to keep this relationship going, he bought her this most magnificent English country house in the Cotswolds wow. as a love nest. <laughs> and he paid for everything. And then, now this, remember, this was the mid-1990s. In about the mid-1970s, he died. Uh Of course, she didn't exist as far as the estate or the family was concerned. So all the income that he used to send her stopped. She was living in this beautiful house she couldn't afford to pay for. She had no job. She was a ballerina, now retired, just lived there with a house, with her animals, growing vegetables and all the rest of it. Uh-huh. So literally over those years, the water got cut off, the power got cut off. There was no drainage. Everything, everything stopped. And the house, which was a very historic building, just got worse and worse. The roof started to leak. The damage was incredible. But the biggest shock of all was there was one very grand, ground floor room that when I went, I couldn't look at all the house because the staircase disintegrated to dust. <laughs> um, the, the one of the rooms, and you open the door, which was a, a room that was probably five meters by five meters with a four or five meter high ceiling. It was a very grand room; would have been a living room in its day. It was full of well, half full of carrier bags. The carrier bags were probably two meters high. They were human waste. Her <gasps> toilets hadn't worked. Her toilets hadn't worked for decades, so oh, the carrier no. bag threw it in this room, and we ended up that property ended up selling back in the 90s for one pound because the building was had heritage listing yeah the the cost implications for restoring the building at that time in the mid-1990s were hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds more than the value of the home when it was done because it was by then it was on a main road which obviously didn't used to be on a main road the main road had been built so yeah, it's a very interesting, quite sad. <laughs> That's story. an
1: incredible story. Thank you for oh, sharing. Yeah,
2: I've got many. I've got many like that. Sadly.
1: <laughs> Tell us about your home. What's your personal style like?
2: I, I'm very shallow because I'm not a trend follower, but I'm very. I see too many houses to not be influenced by what's going on in interiors. Oh, I'm no interior that? designer by any means. I would never claim to be. My wife worked for. Condé Nast and interior magazines in London for many years so she was very much aware of interior design and and that higher end of the market so I kind of have a sort of lovely support and she's great skills in that side of the family but I do I always pick up on things because if you keep an eye on what's happening in the real estate market in places like New York and London whatever's happening in their top end real estate design and interiors will happen to us many years to come and yes. the demise of the all-white kitchen, the demise of shiny white tiles, the re-emergence of terracotta, the odd-coloured bath, coloured bathroom, coloured bars, coloured toilet—all these sorts of things—they've been happening in the high end of the market for years. Yeah, and it's only slowly started. So you can always stay slightly ahead by following other places and, and other worlds. So our style at home adapts we are we're regular house movers because we renovate or build or whatever undo it and then get bored and have to do it again yeah so we've only been we built the house written now we've only been in that two years and we're already looking looking around and the house before that we did a full gutted it and renovated it we were gone within a year of finishing that so each time the style changes because I'm afraid we are impacted by what we've seen and what we like and also the last house was very different in era and style and location to what we're in now I see it's very interesting so I would say that, the, that what we do is we have a star that evolves yes of course we follow the trends but then we try not to I'll follow a trend to a point but when I think everyone's got it I don't want it so yeah. the this controversial thing here the kitchen island everyone's got so my new house does not have one that kitchen layer with the back wall of low bit cupboards either side island in front can't have it everyone's got it it's those (laughs) things that it's not because it isn't brilliant it's because everyone's got it and i want someone to come into my home and just go that's interesting not seen that before My architect on this house came up with a a wonderful design for our entry door, which, again, I hadn't seen before. I have to claim it's her idea, but we had a very wide door opening, and to get a door that big would just be ridiculous, and also it would just not be practical. So we went for the cheapest solid panel, biggest door we could get, made out of compound cheap materials, and another panel, which we cut to size, And then they put grooves in them. So it looked like joints on the panel and the door.
1: Negative. And then,
2: yeah, one great big handle, one end. It looks like one sheer thing. It even, that panelling carries on around the corner as well. So it's seamless. But there's a door there. But you don't know. And I hadn't seen that before. Garage doors are getting hidden, but I hadn't seen the front door. And it actually didn't look like it was hidden. It just looked huge and I say architects came up with that but so that's where I would say the we are real followers I'm afraid slave to it a little bit but we try to be a little bit ahead and then we try to do a couple of odds and ends That just everyone's doing curves at the moment so I can't do curves.
1: I'm the same I obviously with what I do I get judged every person that comes through the home it's like oh I want to see how you live what you do what's the latest so always try and stay ahead of the game and different not doing what everyone else is doing. So I couldn't agree more. Do you find that even though you adapt to styles and you sell frequently and move, do you have blend of styles or is it quite uniform, you would say?
2: Uh, okay, I, I think the key, I think a key to a home, I'm sure if interior design, high end interior design, interior designers, when they're working with the client, yeah. I know this is something that they love to use, is you've got to have some of your stuff in there. If it's all from the new dead, it's got no life. So we have key pieces. I've got, I've probably got about three pieces of furniture and one very lovely armchair that have been going with us forever that constantly get repainted a different colour or a new fabric or something. They're in every house and everyone goes, that's a beautiful piece. It was in the old house, so it was a different colour.
1: Yeah, Um, I love that. Bring the past into the present and look forward to the future.
2: Yeah, so it's a, I think the involvement of things is really, really important and personal things. Are, I see a lot of home staging, which is awful. And I see some good home <laughs> staging. And that, for example, what Wendy does with the interiors on our homes is so different to what everybody was doing a decade ago because the idea is you connect the house with who's going to buy it. You've got to have some family photographs. You've got to have a little bit of life in it. If it's soulless, it's, yeah. And, and also that the colours are coming back in. And, and I actually, I have to say for the first time, I can't remember where it was, where I saw it. I think it was in a house I was looking for a client. They'd obviously gone through and they painted their walls, the obligatory, very pale grey. And I looked at the first, I thought, it's too late. That's done. We've got to find <laughs> our base colour. We went from beige to creamy magnolia to stone and now to grey. And I think that grey is on the borderlines of, of looking at a date now.
1: You've sold a lot of houses in your lifetime. What makes a house a sellable one? What tips and tricks can you share for our listeners?
2: Oh, look, the most most saleable properties are ones that that meet the market. That the price or the price expectations have a massive impact, even when they're unpriced. Still, people are calling the agent, getting a guide, and things like that. That that expectation has got to be sensible. And then you couple that with a home that just has as much appeal to a wider spectrum of buyers as possible. That's why smaller units like one bedroom homes don't always go up in value as much as others because it's a very narrow market. Why a home on a very steep block that might have great views, if that steep block isn't combined with level parking or easy access in and out of the building, it's gonna have such a narrow market. Yeah. so it's wide buyer appeal that's the the thing to to maximize value
1: yeah thank you Andrew when in your life do you feel most fulfilled and what's your happy place
2: oh talking to you of course <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> look to be honest I think I can sum that up we've just had a family holiday in Europe over over December and early January and I think that sort of summed it up because like a lot of families, we hadn't been doing any wonderful travel for a few fair few years. Yeah. And my kids are growing up and anybody that's got teenagers and upwards, they'll know you don't see a lot of them except in the car, ferrying them to places and shouting <laughs> yeah, at them. I
1: can relate to that.
2: It's when you go on holiday, and we're a, we've always been a holiday family. We've always loved holiday. We're not the family that has a miserable time. We're the we're the ones that have a miserable time day to day, and then have a happy time when we go on a holiday. <laughs> and it really was that. That's what I would say. Really got a real buzz. You have this great time together. It's not forced in any way. You suddenly learn things about each other, and you you share experiences. Yeah. So I I guess the holiday is the closely holiday with family, closely followed by as I've been doing more and more recently is Saturday morning open house type. It's just like, yeah, that'll do. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, if you could have a home anywhere in the world, where would it be and why?
2: Oh, you see, I always used to think one home, but now it's it's definitely a combination. I would definitely, without a shadow of a doubt, have. We've still got a little unit in London that we rent out. It's nothing mm-hmm. flash or special. Yeah. Would I like to upgrade that and have a slightly nicer one in more central London? The answer is yes. I would love to have that ability just to zip back to London for a few months a year. And that's all. I never want to live there. That's fine. A couple of months <laughs> of that London life would be yeah, great. And then really where we live on the Gold Coast ticks most of our boxes. I suppose it would only be then a another home. Because you didn't say how many, uh, restrict on how many I could have, I'll have the one in London, I'll have the one in the Gold Coast, and then I'll have one in probably Spain because I'm a bit partial to Spain. I know Italy and France is all very cool, but
1: Have you holidayed in Spain?
2: Oh, holidaying Spain was from when we lived in the UK was what people do, but yeah. uh, we used to go. Yeah, as a family, we did for many years, and yeah, it's just great memories. And I, I just love the, I don't know it's a very free environment, and it's a great buzz to Spain.
1: Yeah, very close proximity, quite convenient. Andrew, I'm conscious of your time. Thank you so much for this morning. Have a fantastic been, it's day. It's been a I pleasure. Really your time.
2: That's all right. Thank you very much. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it.
0: Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The DOMA Show, hosted by Australia's leading luxury interior designer, Katarina Barakovska. To find out more about Katarina and be inspired by her stunning luxury designs, visit KatarinaBarakowska.com. Don't forget to subscribe to DOMA so you don't miss any episodes. Live in luxury, beauty, and love, always.